9, 12, 10, 28, 2, 23. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Deep State Radio. I'm your host, David Rothkopf, coming to you from not too far from New York City. Uh, We are joined today, being a Monday, of course, by Corey Shockey in our nation's capital. How are you today, Corey? I'm exceedingly well, thank you, David. See, that's really good. That's why we start the week off this way. Also, in the general vicinity of our nation's capital, we have Rosa Brooks. Are you doing well today, Rosa? I am doing well, David, thank you. Um, Yeah, guys, you know, we're coming up next week will be four years of doing Deep State Radio, so. That's weird. Yeah, so you, yeah, I mean, I just, you guys look younger, healthier, and better, and I'll leave it <laughs> I at that. I pity the people who've been listening to us for four whole years. <laughs> I do not. I love the deep state nerds who show up for I love this them, conversation. I, I don't, I don't feel like sorry that. for that. They show up, and more and more of them every single week. It's really kind of a miracle. Maybe one of the reasons is that along the way, we've met people like Tom Nichols, uh, who has joined us here also today, contributing writer at The Atlantic. He teaches at the Naval War College at the Harvard Extension School. And he's probably somewhere up the mid-Atlantic, no, the New England coast from here. Is that correct, Tom? I am in fried clam and lobster roll heaven. Uh, <laughs> uh, that's, you know, right here in Rhode Island. That's, you know, and I, I think one of the things I've learned in life is if fried clams are on the menu, you should order them. As long as you are north of Fairfield County, Connecticut, yes. <laughs> Probably, yeah, no, if, if Rosa orders them on one of her Montana trips. You know, um, we don't have uh, seafood native to Washington, DC, but we do have cicadas, which it turns out are related to shrimp. And there oh. are people who are eating them. Rosa, I could have gone a very long time without that visual. Apparently, Corey, they are best air fried. Not so good roasted. I'm (laughs) It's the connection to shrimp that I could do without, Rosa. Yes, and the Washington Post said, um, if you're allergic to shrimp, don't eat cicadas. And I was thinking, (laughs) did someone think we were going to eat the cicadas? But apparently, yes, somebody thought we were all going to be eating cicadas. Tom, have you had any cicadas? yet no I, I frankly i'm afraid to go to the grocery store after this conversation um no i i i don't eat bugs um i do eat crust crustaceans but um now i don't want to think about the lovely fried shrimp that we get up here so yikes yeah i have to say the distinction between bugs and crustaceans is a lot smaller than all of us have persuaded ourselves the most disturbing image of the cicada infestation was a tweet from Rosa a week or two ago saying that her dog was hoovering them up off the sidewalk. Is mm-hmm. that they are delicious. My dog thinks they're like a, a big open air buffet, you know, ground shrimp everywhere. So she just walks along. Go, 
Is this where I do my thing about why cats are better? Because a cat would never go out and start hoovering up bugs. Cat would just torture them and rip their wings off and not eat them. You say that like it's cat. <laughs> <laughs> right. The cat would treat the cicada just like it treats its owners. A cat <laughs> like Vladimir Putin. A dog is like... I don't want to say Donald Trump. That's not fair to dogs. A little bit more like Joe Biden. Dog good, cat bad. I think we should have Putin to the White House and dump a cat in his lap. Just to... <laughs> you know, folks, some people might say, how is it, Rothkopf, that you have ended up hosting a podcast? And, and, and the answer, of course, is the deft way that I guided this conversation from cicadas to Putin, which is really where I wanted it to go. <laughs> and I did it entirely... Um, telepathically. You've got you to really admire that, right? Uh, Tom, the President of the United States is leaving uh, on Wednesday. We're recording this on Monday. And he's going to Europe and, and, and also the, the United Kingdom, which is no longer part in any way of, of Europe. Um, and uh, he is going to um, meet with a variety of our allies. And then on the 16th of the month, he is going to meet with Vladimir Putin in Geneva. This is a little bit controversial. There's some people who think he shouldn't give Putin the time of day. Um, uh, but it's given foreign policy specialists just a great opportunity to write all of those articles they love to write about how this will be a turning point or a big deal, or we'll see a doctrine. Or a Biden doctrine, yeah. Yeah, some other kind of nonsense when, in fact, you know, if he does it right, not much will happen because it's all blocking and tackling. But what are you looking forward to, Tom? I, I'm not, I actually have no expectations for this, and I, I think no one should. Um, you know, normally I'm, I'm not a fan of summits without a, a very detailed, agenda to go with them. Uh, you know, you, you have a meeting between the president of the United States and the president of Russia for a reason that they're there to discuss something. With that said, a quick hello in Geneva, because they know each other. I mean, this isn't a get to know you moment. I mean, they, they, they've been around each other plenty of times before. Um, my hope is that Biden meets with NATO, goes to Geneva, says, good to see you again. Um, all that stuff you've been pulling for the past five years is over. Um, really, all the past seven or eight, I'm the president now. Things are going to be different. Um, you know, all the best uh, and goodbye. Uh, and I think that's about where he should keep it. Because I do think um, avoiding Putin, as much as we kind of have all internalized the Cold War narrative that you only do summits as a reward, you know, or that they're very important or um, that they are profile raising for the Russian president. Um, I think that the past five years have been so crazy mm -hmm. that I think it's good to have the president say, no, I'm not, I'm not trying to meet with him and I'm not trying not to meet with him. I'm going to Europe. I'm meeting with our allies. He's coming to Switzerland. I'm going to Switzerland. We're going to talk for a few minutes and get on with the business of, you know, keeping a world at peace. And I, if that's, if that, I think that's all they should do. And I hope that's all that comes from it. Dr. Shockey, do you concur? Uh, about 80%. Uh, I do agree that it's, um, I actually think in 
any circumstances, it's important for the American president to be talking to foreign heads of state, in particular, foreign heads of state from enemy or adversary countries. Uh, that, you know, diplomatic engagement isn't a gift we give to people. It's a tool we use to protect and advance our interests. So I think Tom's exactly right about that. I also think he's exactly right about the business-like uh, we should dial down the emotion of this conversation. But I think I would go a little bit further than Tom for a couple of reasons. One is I think there are important negative messages that need to be conveyed to Vladimir Putin about the behavior of uh, Russian-based organizations and possibly even the Russian government in intellectual property theft, in cyber attacks, in attempted, um, you know, Putin gets the vapors over the idea that, that non-governmental organizations like Human Rights Watch uh, or Amnesty International or the National Democratic Institute operate within Russia. And yet they have a much bigger and malevolent footprint in American life, both directly governmentally and uh, in consenting to allow their territory and networks to be used by criminal organizations. Um, and so I think a message the president should deliver is that if you want help and cooperation on issues of importance to the government of Russia, then we also have things we wanna hold you accountable for. Um, so, so I think that's a specifically important message to send. The other thing I would say is, I think it's disgraceful that the Biden administration has retained tariffs on 232 national security grounds against America's closest friends like Canada, right? Saying that we can't import Canadian steel because it's a threat to American national security. But I think it was a very good move that they sustained the tariff or the punitive measures against Russia, because I think it would have sent a weird signal to relax those in advance of your first meeting with Vladimir Putin. On that, I think we should get something in terms of improved Russian behavior before we let go of the tariffs. And uh, Officer Brooks, what do you think of all this? Well, David, as usual, I'm in complete agreement with Corey. No, and, and with Tom. I, you know, I think that this is a keep your friends close and your enemies closer moment for Biden. I also think that ironically avoiding Putin would, would sort of give him more importance than a quick meeting with him gives him. You know, that we don't want to treat him like he's a bogeyman. We don't want to treat him like he's the you know arch fiend who we're scared of and is just so evil that we can't can't bear to be in his presence or anywhere near him. You know, I think that what Biden is doing with luck will ratchet the temperature down a little bit, you know, gives Putin a little tiny something, which is that the Americans aren't ignoring me and they take me seriously, while at the same time being an opportunity for Biden to say, I'm not Donald Trump, uh, you know, I'm not as dumb as Donald Trump and I'm, I'm not as obsequious as Donald Trump, but we can coexist, uh, uh, I think we can coexist if we can find some common ground on some issues, even while we completely distrust each other and dislike each other. So I, I think it's the right move, um, uh, absolutely. So Tom, one of the main messages of the first part of this trip, according to the, the president, is that he's gonna go meet with our allies and say, 
it's all great to be democracies together. Um, of course, there's a bit of a problem with that. I know you have a book coming out on this subject. And I was just wondering how, how Biden's it's all great to be democracies together message is going to land in Europe. Yeah, um, you know, the, that this is the argument we should have been having in the 1990s and the early 2000s about what happens when you make NATO into a, you know, kind of giant anti-Russian club, which a lot of us thought were, there were a lot of us who were in favor of NATO expansion, but not kind of rapid and super wide NATO expansion, but that horse has left the barn. Um, by the way, I just want to back up one second and say, to, you know, so that we can have tremendously heated agreement that when I said Biden should tell Trump, you know, that the free ride the past five years is over. It's precisely the kind of things that Rosa and Corey are talking about with an implied threat to say, look, you know, we can we can cooperate, we can do things or we can start inflicting some misery in response here. You know, we are no longer supine in the way that we've been for the past four years. But again, I think quick business like in and out. You know, I, I, I think I, and I particularly agree with Rosa that, you know, don't mythologize Putin. He's just a thug. He's just a mafia boss running. He's a, running a big country. He deserves our attention as much as a lot of other people running big countries. And we shouldn't run scared from him. On um, talking to our NATO allies, um, <clears throat> you know, I, I, I'm having this like weird 1975 vibe where Gerald Ford goes to NATO and says, it's good that we're all together, right? Because, of course, if you're having to say it that way, it means that you're not all together. And so when Biden goes over and says it's good that we're all, you know, um, this union of democracies, there's an implied problem here that we're not a union of democracies. And I think one of the things behind the scenes, and I'm hoping for a return of behind the scenes diplomacy rather than diplomacy by tweet and whatever kind of fly. And I, I'm going to bet I'm going to even include Barack Obama, who I think had a tendency to just be too discursive and sort of think out loud too much of saying things behind the scenes to say, look, we understand you are not going to be an American style Jeffersonian democracy, but you do reflect, you know, the feelings of your people, the popular will and so on. And there are certain things that we're going to expect. But one of them is that you are actually an ally of the United States and not an admirer of the regime in Russia, because we're running into that problem now. There are politicians in Central Europe and in places like Turkey, where you know we, the alliance um, could become—it's um, not—it's beyond strained. I mean, there is an ideological problem. So I think Biden saying it, but then saying it in public, but reinforcing it in private again as kind of recovery from the past five years, four and a half years, is really important. You know, Corey, I'm thinking, listening to uh, what Tom is saying, that we should, we could possibly entitle this episode of the podcast, Make Diplomacy Boring Again. Um, <laughs> but it, but <laughs> I don't know, the, the reality is, as I think back, it's, it, it, it has never been quite as boring as it should be. Maybe this is a moment that we can really make it as boring as it should be. What do you think? So I'm... I have to say very much in favor of the boring competence of the Biden administration. It appeals to me uh, temperamentally and the reestablishing of trust in expertise, a subject on which Tom has written so profoundly. 
um, I think is good for democracy in America. Um, I, but the United States is the country that typically uses public diplomacy most to its advantage. And I'll just give my favorite example of today, uh, which is Warren G. Harding, when president of the United States and opening a big conference uh, on naval armaments restrictions in 1922, uh, invited all the secretary of state invited all of the delegates to the president's uh, commemoration at the tomb of the unknown soldier to, ins to reinforce how pacifist the United States was, how little interested in Europe's wars the United States was. And then they had a thousand public spectators at the negotiations themselves in order to reinforce the American position uh, on, on other negotiators, on the Japanese, the Italians, the French. Um, and so uh, I'm, I'm hesitant to give a sweeping endorsement of private negotiations because I can think of a bunch of times when the public negotiation has been advantageous for a country like ours, which is largely incapable of keeping secrets anyway. But I think Tom's main point, which is sensible policy, not shouted in the most divisive way possible in the public square, advances America's diplomacy, makes us more trusted among allies and actually more feared among adversaries and enemies, which is a long way of saying I agree with Tom. First of all, you've reminded us once again why you're a national treasure because the Harding example is great. Secondly, I've heard Tom called many things in the past few years as he's taken strong stands against the administration, but calling him a Hardingite, <laughs> excellent. And, uh, you know, it freshens, it freshens the discussion somewhat. And I'm, I do I'm wanna- I'm trying to determine how I feel about that. <laughs> well, th th think about it. take some it. research. <laughs> Yeah, you, you may want to do something. Okay, actually, I can I can say one way in which I believe you will embrace being a Hardingite. Uh, when he signed the um, paperwork ending World War One, his statement was: "This war was properly begun by initiative of the United States. America's participation was properly begun by congressional authorization." And it also ends now properly by congressional negotiation. That I think you would sign up for. Yeah, and, I, and I'll just say, I, I love the idea of the demonstrative and um, symbolic public actions of the United States. But I, I'm worried that um, first we have been so undermined within and at home uh, that we're not in, this, not in the position we we could be going over to, you know, give lecture, stirring lectures on democracy. And I'm also worried about the fact that in some of our allies, in some of our, some of the countries that are now part of NATO, they're very pro-American and pro-Russian um, elements. And I, I'm, I just don't want Biden perceived as, you know, trying to bully those societies. I, I think this is a, what was his line during the, um, campaign, we will lead by the power of our example. 
Um, and I think, you know, going over and, and, and I, think, I think one thing we should have learned over the past 10 years is sometimes the United States is most effective when we are kind of grim and, and, and determined and resolute rather than talking and, and jabbering at, at our friends and allies. Go over, make it, make it a point to say this and, and to be unflinching about it, but then to, then to reinforce it, to say, look, we understand your domestic politics. But there, there are going to have to be changes. I think that last part, I think Corey, you probably agree. That's not the part you say out loud. You know that you, you know, you do the whole thing up in public, and then quietly that evening you say, "And by the way, I have some additional things I want to talk to you about." Yeah, although you know, Rosa, one of the things that struck me, I did a column in the Daily Beast over the weekend, uh, looking at the issue of democracy in the United States, and I was comparing it to what's going on. Uh, with Viktor Orban, what's going on in Poland, what's going on in, you know, with Erdogan, Modi to some extent, Duterte. Um, one of the things that struck me in all of this, though, was, I mean, quite, let's just even set aside Trump here, because Trump, you know, loved those people who attacked democracy and sent, gave them all the wrong signals. We tend, when it comes to democracy, uh, you know, when a guy like Orban strays, we, we, we tend to like wring our hands, clutch our pearls, complain about it. Um, but uh, we don't do much about it. We don't penalize them much for not, for, for leaving the fold. Um, and, you know, I, I think the, the point that this kind of thing should be done often uh, more privately, or, or the point should initially be made that way, may make some sense. But we, we, we you know, the, 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 our track record in advocating for democracy around the world hasn't been so great, Rosa. This is true, David, but I'm not sure that the lesson of that should be, oh, we need to be more forceful in our defense of democracy around the world, because that hasn't worked out so well either. Um, you know, I, I think that, that yes, um, we, we make noises, we clutch our pearls, and, and we don't always do something. Um, sometimes it's because we can't always do anything, you know, and, and when we, when uh, CF, Iraq war, CF, uh, the last 20 years in Afghanistan, et cetera, um, you know, I actually think that sometimes uh, discretion being the better part of valor saying, hey, um, there's not a whole lot we can do here without potentially making things a whole lot worse. Is, is, is the right, is the only thing, it's the only alternative. I, you know, I think that we're at a moment, we all, we all know this, where uh, global trust in the US is, is down. Everybody's very, very, all of our democratic friends or quasi-democratic friends are very happy that Trump isn't there. They're not sure how much they can trust uh, uh, America to stay the course um, in, in boringness, right? That, that everybody is fearful, as I think all of us are, frankly, uh, that the Biden administration may be a, you know, a brief happy lull in between, you know, Trumpian moments. Um, and I think our, our allies are quite right to fear the same thing. So they're, you know, they're keeping us a little bit at arm's length. We don't, we don't have the amount of global power and sway that we once had. Uh, and some, you know, when you're in that position, what are you going to do? Um, sometimes all you can do is say, yeah, we, we don't like this, Victor Rowan. We don't like this at all. Um, but we're not going to invade you and we don't have the power to make you change just by scolding you. Um, and that's, and that's the way it is. Um, so 
I'm not quite sure, you know, I'm not quite sure that there is a viable alternative for the United States, certainly not at this moment. I'd be interested in what you think, Tom, uh, with Orban, precious little was done, Poland, little was done, Belarus, things have been a mess. Now they're not part of uh, the same sphere, obviously, but precious little was done. What should be done? Well, I, I'm, I mean, I was quietly cheering on Rosa over here because, you know, one of the things you have to think about if you're going to do this is what threats are you willing to make that you'll carry out? We're not going to kick these guys out of NATO. First of all, Russians would love that. Um, you know, let's start unraveling, you know, the eastern flank of NATO because we're pissed. Um, you know, we've, we've gotten through, I mean, look, in the 1970s, we had two NATO allies that were both juntas at war with each other. And we managed to survive this. I mean, I, you know, I was a boy with relatives in Greece during the colonels. I mean, this was, we have gone through undemocratic phases with warlike allies where we have somehow managed to preserve <clears throat> the alliance and without calling each other out. Um, with that said, you know, what, what issues can we raise? I mean, we can, we can talk about, you know, we can talk to Putin about Navalny and he says, well, what are you going to do about it? You know, again, I think rather than get into a quid pro quo or an argument to simply say, you know, the issues we're concerned about and we, you know, we will act in our good time according to the considerable resources at our disposal and let them start worrying about it. Um, and we can do the same with our allies to say, look, we, you know, this is my first trip over as a new president in a new era. And this is what I'm telling you we're concerned about. If you're going to tell me to take a, take a long walk off a short pier, then I, I hear you. I understand you. I will have to go home and think about what happens next. And that means you're going to have to think about what happens next. And, and to let the uncertainty start resting on some of the bad guys. I think, I one think of the, Tom, we need you as one of our chief negotiators out there. <laughs> <laughs> because of my well-known reputation for, for diplomacy, you know, for, for diplomacy and yeah. but I, I think you know, insofar as I'm capable of giving advice to to diplomats, um, like a movie critic who can't make a movie, um, I would say the it is time for some anxiety-producing uncertainty about what America is capable of. And I'll just add one quick anecdote about why I think this way. Right after 9/11, I went to Europe. And I went both to London and to Moscow. And then during that period, this was like October, we weren't saying anything. We were just like, heads down, we'll, we'll get back to you about what we're going to do. We weren't letting anything leak. I never saw our friends or our, our enemies or our adversaries, our competitors, let's say, more respectful and more tense about what the United States could do when we weren't talking about it all day. And I think we can do that with Putin. And I think we can do it with our allies to say, we are in a new period. We've made some new decisions. We're not going to share all those decisions with you. We are capable of doing some different things, but here are our priorities. You want to tell us to go fly a kite? That's going to have consequences. And what those are, we'll let you figure that out later. I, I think you can hear among all of us a kind of appreciation for this approach. Of course, as I said in the beginning, there will be a bunch of you know, foreign policy wise guys out there who will say, oh, well, Biden, nothing came out of this, or he was too quiet, or you know, this was too, too, too muted. 
Um, one of the other things that may happen, of course, Corey, is that a guy like Putin may try to, you know, make some cheap play for the cameras. And what makes me think that is that his foreign minister the other day in one of the moves, and I'm sure this is a Russian term, one of the more chutzpahdik moves I've ever seen, <laughs> you know, had the audacity to um, uh, suggest that the United States was going a little rough on the coup plotters and that, you know, we were abusing their human rights. And, you know, you could, I, it, it, it would be classic Putin to say, well, of course, we lectured the United States on the decline of democracy in that country. Um, what do you expect in this, in this vein from uh, this character? So I agree with you that Putin's attempts to discredit um, the United States, we should always be worried about that. Um, but my theory of the case of Russian behavior in the last several years has been that Russia is a declining power and, and cannot recover uh, either prosperity or cultural and political vibrancy while Putin remains in charge. And that we're going to have to be worried about Russian behavior uh, as long as he's in charge. And I actually think the fact that they're holding this summit is proof of that, right? The Russians were massing forces as though to invade Ukraine. And that's when Biden went from swaggering around saying, yeah, I think Vladimir Putin's a killer, to I'd like the opportunity to talk with the Russian president. It, it was clearly a payoff for de-escalating tensions over Ukraine. And I think that was a price well worth paying. I mean, to Tom's point about stop saying stuff in public um, that make the, the prospect of achieving your actual policy goals more difficult. The performativeness of American foreign policy is almost always unhelpful. Um, and I do think the Biden administration uh, is beginning to demonstrate as you know, this is going to be my hobby horse, David, because I've already said it 27 times on the podcast, the gap between the pose they are striking on human rights and democracy promotion at the center of American policy, and their actual policies, right, most recently, uh, wanting Congress to strip off any limitations on providing arms to Egypt, which looks to me like a payoff for Egypt's constructive role in the de-escalating the fighting between Israel and Palestinians. Like the world's complicated uh, and we often make grubby trade-offs because they're in our interests, but, but it makes people cynical when you're striking poses out of sync with your policies. Yeah, that's true. And there are plenty of other people in that general zip code who are getting weapons from the United States who have policies that are antithetical um, uh, to, to what we say on human rights. One of the interesting sort of ironic subtexts of all this, Rosa, is that while this the, the spotlight will be on the Trump 
I, excuse me, on the, on the Biden-Putin meeting at the end of all of this, a lot of what Biden is doing and going to Europe and trying to bring them together and shape the focus going forward is actually not oriented towards Russia. It's oriented towards how the West deals with China um, and bringing us back together as an alliance and emphasizing. And I think one of the reasons that Biden goes back and again and again describes the world as intention between um, uh, democracies and autocracies is not about Russia, even though it is about Russia to some extent. It's really about China. What what do you you know what, what how what how do you see that dimension of this trip? I think he's got his work cut out for him. I you know I think that from the U.S. perspective, China is more of a competitor, more of a threat. Uh, whereas the Europeans are somewhat more reliant on China, are a little bit more skeptical about the idea that China should be viewed as as adversarial, more more bullish on the idea that there can be constructive collaborations with China. So I, I think it's, it's you know, Biden faces a bit of an uphill battle trying to get them on board. Um, and, you know, as we said earlier, our, our influence is diminished in general. And here they, here's some, here's an area where I think the Europeans may very well feel like their interests diverge from ours. Um, so I don't, I don't know that he's going to be able to get a whole lot done. That, that being said, I, I actually think that's okay. I mean, I think, I think as we were saying earlier, you know, you don't have to get everything done this early. You get to say, hey, this is my first big foreign trip. I'm just here to kind of say hello. Uh, good to see you all. Um, you know, really look forward to keeping the channels of communications open. Everybody uh, will be back. Um, that's, I think that's all he really needs to do right now. And, and frankly, probably pretty much all he should do, because I think this is not the moment for the U.S. to be making big asks of our European allies, especially on issues like China, where our interests may be a little bit divergent or we perceive them as being divergent. I mean, this goes back to the, you know, lead by the power of your example, not the example of your power and so on, you know, that, that we have to rebuild our credibility a little bit and, you know, show that we are okay being a slightly humbler team player before we're going to be in a good position to start saying, listen, we need you to trust us on this. Listen, we need you to go along with this. Um, I think, if, I think if Biden tried to do that right now, it would, it would fall flat. Uh, it wouldn't work. Um, so it's smart for him to just be, you know, shaking hands and being nice and going home right now. Okay, that sounds that sounds good to me. We've got about five minutes here. Uh, so I'm going to sh shoot a quick question to each one of you around a, a common theme. Tom, when I was in the United States government, um, but, you know, back before the Harding administration, <laughs> the, the, the regular uh, um, uh, request prior to every trip was, what are our deliverables? And, uh, you know, we, we had to have a list of deliverables. Um, and, uh, you know, what we've talked about here suggests that, you know, the best deliverable is for him to get on the flight home without anything really bad happening. Are there any deliverables you'd like to see on this trip? No. Uh, I, I said that quickly in part because I, um, you know, I might be, and, and I push against that as a former, you know, Senate guy. And also I have to remind people, I don't speak for the Naval War College. I, I, I don't like those artificial metrics. I'm probably the only guy who teaches military education who hates the term uh, exit strategy and end states. And, you know, because I think there are so many 
um, um, you know, sort of conditional uh, and contentious moments that can that can pop up. So my, you know, my, I'm a first do no harm guy uh, for an opening act like this in Europe. Um, I think as well too, not picking a fight. Just to emphasize something Rosa was saying, but not picking a fight over things like China. I mean, China is a different animal because they have much more, much. I would say they're in some ways. I'll be counterintuitive here and say in some ways they're less dangerous than Russia because they have much more invested in the status quo than the Russians do. Um, and so avoiding stepping on any minds about China that are a needless problem when you have this really difficult situation with Putin is probably good. So, you know, the headline I'm looking for is Biden returns from Europe, um, you know, and with no, and I, and I hope, for example, David, you brought up you know, that if he lectures us on the one six guys, I, I hope Biden goes full Reagan. You know, if he says that and says, oh, there you go again, you know, and sort of and just waves him off because I think we don't want to get into that kind of public pissing match there. Uh, so I, 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 I am not looking for a deliverable because I think we've I think that puts too much on a president who is really triaging our relationship with our allies and trying to deal with, you know, this fallow mess that's been left behind uh, when it comes to our opponents. Okay, I'm gonna ask another question about deliverables very quickly of Corey and Rosa, um, but I'm gonna switch it up a little bit because we've all said Biden's going on this big trip. It's gonna get a lot of publicity. He shouldn't really do anything. He should try not to do no harm. It'd be great if it was boring. Meanwhile, of course, the hard work goes to who? The woman, the vice president of the United States, who's being asked to go off to a part of the world nobody pays any attention to, Central America, where there are metrics that people are going to judge whether she likes it or not. And I just, you know, I just want to take a moment to get your your, your take on this because Kamala Harris has this, you know, she now has two nearly impossible tasks, one having to deal with the immigration, the other having to do with voting rights when the United States Congress doesn't seem to um, care about that. Um, her, di her diplomatic task is a little bit tougher in Central America, isn't it, Corey? Why doesn't Rosa go first and then I'll circle back? <laughs> no, it is, it is, right. Poor Kamala gets to go off and deal with this impossible problem, right? Migration, et cetera. Um, we have obviously been struggling with this for years. There's, there's no way to make people happy on this. Um, the US has not shown either the inclination um, or the resources, uh, uh, willingness to make the resources available to try to seriously address the various underlying conditions in Latin America that fuel migration. It's also not particularly clear, going back to my earlier comment about um, democracy promotion, it's not particularly clear that we have the slightest idea how to spend money in a way that will create stable, prosperous democratic societies sufficient to reduce the, the desperation that leads people to migrate. Um, even if we, we had the, even if we had the resources and we're happy to spend them, you know, so I, I think she has a kind of impossible task. Um, uh, the left will be angry um, if the left gets angry with any restrictions on immigration. Um, the right gets angry with anything perceived accurately or inaccurately as as, you know, lax laxness at the border. 
Um, so she is basically just being sent off to do the shit work. And as you said, David, um, I'm sure she's used to it. Um, and I hope she, you know, I, I, I expect her to handle it as gracefully as anyone can, but no, she's, she's screwed. So I actually disagree with both Rosa <laughs> and Tom. Um, let me start by ending, disagreeing ending with- Ending this on a note of amity. Yes, go on. <laughs> it's amicable. Right. It's just disagreement. Um, uh, so I disagree with Tom that there should be no deliverables. Um, and the reason is that we already have deliverables, right? The, the member of the sisterhood who got handed the crummiest job and served it up flamme on a platter successfully was Janet Yellen, the treasury secretary, who managed to um, pull up the, um, the, the minimum corporate tax rate um, agreement in the G7. That's huge, David, you would know better than I, but it looks like it was 10 years in the making and nobody could cut the Gordian knot. Uh, and then she found a way to deliver on it and to also give a pretty elegant and credible threat against countries that won't sign up to participate in it, which is that we're gonna impose the rate externally. Which, so, so there's one great deliverable. A second deliverable I would like to see, and that ought to be in reach and is consistent with what the administration wants to do, and now's the time to push NATO allies on it, is for common funding of operations. In NATO, there's a very small slice like airborne warning um, that is paid jointly but any country that contributes forces to an operation actually pays the total costs of that. And that disincentivizes countries from participating in things like Afghanistan and creating a common pool that we all pay into for anybody who's willing to send their forces on agreed missions would actually strengthen the NATO alliance um, and it's in reach. Uh, and on Putin, I think the private threat is a better than a public deliverable. I agree with Tom on that. And on Rosa, as to the vice president uh, be giving the worst job in the free world, um, that is consistent with being the vice president of these United <laughs> States. Moreover, if she actually wants a shot at being Joe Biden's successor, she's got to show a lot more political skill than she demonstrated as a presidential candidate. And he is giving her the opportunity to prove it and to give herself concrete, um, uh, concrete achievements in the way it looks to me like President Biden is giving a number of potential successors, Governor Granholm uh, and others, the opportunity to prove that they can actually uh, be presidential. So I think it's an opportunity for her. And it looks to me like some of the discussions with Mexico may prove actually really helpful in managing the southern border. Um, excellent, ex excellent points, all of them. And I, I just want to draw a big dark line, line under the point about Janet Yellen. Uh, that was very deft. I don't, it's going to be very hard to implement it. But that move was very depth, both in terms of foreign policy and in terms of domestic policy. As for the vice presidency, uh, it's widely quoted that uh, 
a vice president in the middle of the last century referred to the job as not being worth a bucket of warm spit. I don't believe that's actually what he said. Um, I, I believe I believe that he he did not say spit. Um, uh, but uh, you're you're absolutely right about the nature of the job, and you know we will see if she's up to it. So far, so good. Um, uh, we've run out of time. This has been a great discussion. I hope everybody out there in deep state land is listening to it, because for the next week you're going to be reading a lot of stuff about this trip that is going to be a little bit uh, misleading and overwrought, I'm pretty sure. Uh, and this put it into perspective, which is why I am so glad we continue to do this. Uh, we'll come back uh, to you all next week. Next week, we will celebrate the fourth anniversary of Deep State Radio with a little bit of a look back and a little bit of a look forward. Uh, and most of us who've been doing this, we're actually doing it for a couple of years before that. So we, uh, um, we're, we're into our third administration now, and I think uh, there's plenty to, plenty to talk about. So go to the dsrnetwork.com to find out more about what we've got coming up. We've got some interesting shows on books and other things um, with guests like uh, Dan Jurgen and Jillian Tett and uh, in a couple of weeks, uh, Jeff Garten. Um, uh, and uh, you'll find that all there. And you'll also find there a little button you can click called membership and you can even in a small way support what we're doing and we'd be grateful for it. So thanks to all of you out there. Thank you, Tom. Thank you, Rosa. Thank you, Corey. Uh, and uh, stay healthy, everybody. Bye-bye. <laughs>